Sunday because it's the, the Sunday, uh, uh, as we heard earlier, where people line the roads uh, with palm fronds and put their cloaks down so that uh, when, uh, when Jesus rode down towards Jerusalem, right, he, he could be welcomed with sort of a hero's welcome. They were, they were uh, hollering out, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Yet, again, as we heard during our time of of confession, a lot of these people who were lined up on the the road uh, would later on probably be the same people who were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We reenact this tragedy ourselves, right, time and, and time again. Again, like we said in, the, in that time of confession, where we sing God's praises on Sunday, and then on Sunday afternoon, right, we, we are crucifying him all over again. And uh, although we're going to be in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians again today, I'd like to go just a, a couple pages past that to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and, and just hear these words of Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in, in uh, verse 2. For a people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And if this were just Paul talking about the world, that would be one thing. But this is Paul talking about the church. This is no surprise to God. The church is made up of believers, but it's made up of human believers. We're justified before God, but not fully sanctified, not made fully holy yet. And so as Paul writes uh, to the Romans, we are still apt, likely to, to resist God's law because of our own passions. He, he, he writes, For I know that the, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And then later he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And, but then he, he, he goes with the very next line, Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. Because just as God continues to sanctify us as individuals, he is sanctifying us as a church. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. But although one day we will stand before the Lord and be holy without blemish, these days we still have spots, right? We still have wrinkles. We still have uh, imperfections. And so again, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he is still working in his church and to sanctify it and to sanctify us. And so going to our, our text Today, we see that this is the case in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be doing verses 12 through 15 today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you 
and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Over the past few months, as we've gone through 1 Thessalonians, we've seen Paul exhort this, this ordinary church right, to, to mature, to grow up into the mission it, it has. Paul spends the previous four chapters illustrating how an ordinary church can demonstrate extraordinary gospel power. It can experience and it can catalyze gospel conversion, engage in gospel ministry, and even in the face of opposition, practice gospel care, holiness, and witness, and trust in and testify to gospel hope. Now Paul is going to illustrate what it looks like to do this in gospel community. In these four short verses we're covering today, he gives us an insight into the structure and to the nature of that community. Those first verses, uh, verses 12 and 13, talk a bit about structure. And we hear often, Josh and I have heard and and the elders have heard, and you've probably heard this too, from from people who want church to be simpler, to bring it back to to what it used to be. And and here, we've got those desires here at FCBC as, as well. We've been convicted over the past years to simplify things, right? and, and we've specifically tasked our mission leaders over this past year to, to really look at everything they do and see, does it fit into the mission that we've been given to proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, make disciple-making disciples, and to send and support our missionaries. But there are misunderstandings about what church used to be. One of those misunderstandings is that the early church was unstructured, and, and this is just not the case. It's not only here that Paul talks about leadership, but, but all through his letters, right? He sends Timothy to the churches with, with, with instructions to, to set up elders and deacons, and he gives them specific qualifications for each, he, tells, he talks about what they're supposed to do from its very beginning in Acts. Right, the ordinary people in the ordinary church have been called into positions of leadership. And this model of, of, of eldership reaches back even further to, to the time of, the, of Genesis and Exodus. The Bible tells us that these leaders are to oversee, to shepherd the church, to lead, to teach, to oversee, discipline, and care for the church. And here at FCBC, we are blessed to have a team of elders and deacons who do just that. Paul writes, we're supposed to give due respect to those leaders, not because they have some special status or or privilege, but because they work among us and they have the task of overseeing. The writer of Hebrews tells us that they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In our passage in 1 Thessalonians, Paul identifies that one of the ways in which they keep this watch is by admonishing us. And the word, the word translated admonish comes from two root words in, in the Greek, which literally mean to put to mind or put into mind. And that could include, include teaching or, exhort, or exhortation, correction, gentle discipline, 
but as we'll see, it, it's used later on in this passage. It seems like he's specifically talking about gentle discipline. Again, in the book of Hebrews, we are told, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so often, we don't like being corrected. We don't like discipline. And to be honest, it's not fun to give discipline. And those of us who are parents know that as well. But again, back in Hebrews, the leaders of the church are told to fulfill this and their other roles with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The godly leadership should foster godliness in the church. And having briefly touched then on the structure of the church, Paul says this is what that that leadership ought to result. This is the nature of, of what that church ought to look like. And he describes it under the heading, be at peace among yourselves. Jesus, the one who was welcomed in on Palm Sunday with Hosanna, is the Prince of Peace. We are called to emulate Jesus, to be followers of Jesus. Little Christs is, is, is one way of, of putting it. And so if we're supposed to be little Christs, we ought also to be peacemakers. The church of northern Greece is one that was born into persecution. Right? Paul and Silas were jailed and, and beaten in Philippi. They get about 100 miles to the west to uh, Thessalonica, and, and they're attacked by a mob. They go to Berea, a little bit further to the west, and the mob follows uh, them. As Paul said earlier in, the, in, in 1 Thessalonians, you receive the word in much affliction. The affliction continued as Paul warned them it would, and he sent Timothy specifically to help establish and exhort their faith in the midst of, the, of that persecution. Timothy returns with a good report. The faith of the Thessalonians is growing despite the persecution. And, and Paul rejoices. In the face of these external challenges, the last thing they need is discord, is, is conflict within. So Paul echoes the same words that he, he's written early to, the, to the Romans. He writes this to the Corinthians. And, and Jesus Christ himself uh, says it to his disciples. Be at peace among yourselves. And Paul addresses four specific ways uh, for, for them, uh, the, the Thessalonians, to practice this. Right? He, he, he says in, in here to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak, be patient with them all. As we heard a few weeks ago, the church at Thessalonica did have a problem with internal conflict. And some of this was arising from people who were idle, who were they were not busy at work, but busy bodies, is, is what 2 Thessalonians says. Paul exhorts the church to admonish some people, to correct them in love. And th- but then you heard earlier, right, uh, Dan, Dan read from, from uh, James chapter 4, who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? It, it, Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. Right? We're not supposed to judge our neighbor, but you're telling me I ought to exhort him. Well, those two verses, right, the, the ones judge not, lest you not be judged, or who are you to judge your neighbor, there's a difference between that and admonishment. Right? Judging in, in that is adjudicating right and wrong, right? Pronouncing a condemnation, maybe even a penalty. But there's a difference between that and admonishing, right? even rebuking or correcting a person 
who is in sin. In the secular world, a legal judgment which convicts a person of a crime requires not only the actions or the inactions that that break the law, but the state of mind in which that infraction occurs. The legal term is mens rea. It means the, the, the criminal mind or the guilty mind. It's the intention or the knowledge under which that crime is committed. In spiritual language, we would say it's the heart. The the Bible is very clear that only God truly knows and judges the heart. We should tread very carefully in trying to do so, and only with the clarity of God's word. If you you turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 3 through 5, it says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll be here for a little bit. Paul writes, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I did not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light all the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. So we're not only to avoid judging others' hearts, but even judging our own hearts. And if we continue reading the same passage, it doesn't mean that we should not confront sin, and when necessary, do so vehemently. Continuing, it says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you've all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Do you hear the passion in, in these words, the pain even? They are strong words, direct, and they're even cutting. I mean, imagine Paul saying this to you. What differentiates this admonishment from that judgment, saying not to judge just a few verses earlier? It's the same writer. I mean, it's God wrote it all, right? But but he, the same human author, says the same thing. He's not contradicting himself in in there. We find this in the very next verse. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So compare this to Jesus' parable of of the self-righteous 
Pharisee, right, who thanks God that he is holier than other men. Or the warning in James chapter 2 that the purpose of unrighteous judgment is to make distinctions among ourselves, that we become judges with evil thoughts, to bring dishonor or shame to others. Paul's admonition, on the other hand, is purpose to discipline those whom he loves, right? to draw attention to their sin and show them the better way. And so, again, in, in 1 Thessalonians uh, t- today, he calls us to admonish the idol. The, the word idol can also mean disordered or, or unruly. It's, it's not somehow to claim superiority over, over lazy bums and, and, and then draw attention to our self-righteous uh, industriousness, which in polite church term we, we call tireless work for the kingdom. No, it's, it's to discipline those in love who, who are in sin and show them a better way. And so while James writes that we are not to judge our neighbor, James ends his his letter with this. My brothers, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Along with admonishing the idol, Paul calls us to encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. Last Sunday night, Jim Engel prayed preached on encouraging one another. And last week's sermon ended in verse 11 of this chapter. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. doing. Discord, conflict can grow from weariness. We all know this. All of us know someone. I've known one such person my entire life uh, because he's me, who, who gets cantankerous when he or she is tired, right? Weary, overwhelmed, worried. And though the Bible says we're not to to become weary in doing good, the truth is that we often do become weary. The troubles of this life are many. There are broken and strained relationships. We've got work, school, aging, injuries, sickness, financial worries, bearing each other's burdens. And that's just ordinary life for most, most of us. Some people are dealing with military deployments or other extended absences from each other. Uh, Imprisonment, isolation, missions assignments. Even the strong in faith can become weary. And we're truly promised. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But even the strongest in faith, sometimes that, that faith cracks, right? It grows impatient in the midst of trials. James writes that we ought to uphold the prophets as examples of patience right, and suffering. And, and he says we ought, we, we ought to bless or hold up as an example also Job for his steadfastness. Yet Isaiah, the prophet, the man of God, reached a point of exacerbation, of exasperation. And Job falls to, to despair to the point that he curses his own day of birth, and he challenges God's righteousness. So I'm sure I'm not the only one who becomes cantankerous when I am discouraged. The seeds of discord find fertile ground in the conditions of, of the faint-hearted. We, we tend to be 
more irritable, less patient, and less able to see the positive than God at work. And God recognizes this. That his word is full of encouragement for the faint-hearted. It's full of help for the weak. He carries Abram and Sarah through the, the weariness of infertility. He holds up Moses before Pharaoh. He tears down the intimidating walls before Joshua. He sustains a widow and a child in famine, and he slays an invading army in the middle of the night. He holds true to his wor word. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then despite our rebellion against him, a, re a rebellion that is deserving of death and damnation, we, when we come to recognize our desperate situation, that we have dug a pit to hell, and every bit of righteousness that we try to do, it, that we think would dig us out, is just digging us further into that hole. We cry out in, de in despair, in our faint-heartedness, and Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God is an encourager and a helper. If we faint-hearted souls who have been rescued from the pit of sin by Christ and are called to emulate our Savior, then we ought to be right people who are also encouragers and helpers for those who are faint-hearted or weak. The next thing Paul says is that we ought to be patient and forgiving. He says, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. So just like we're called not to be weary in doing good, we are called to be patient. And sometimes it's easier, right, to be patient with the faint-hearted and the weak than it is to be patient with the idle. But Paul says, be patient with them all and respond to evil by doing good. Paul writes to the Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Patience is a critical component of peacemaking. But we're not patient people. In the Gospel of, of Matthew, Jesus lays out a structure for admonishing those who, who sin against you in, in, in Matthew chapter 18. And he talks about going there and, and, so that you can be reconciled. And after he finishes that, almost immediately after he finishes that, Peter comes up and he, and he says, but how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? We're not patient people. And so Jesus goes into a parable he talks about the unforgiving servant, this servant who's forgiven much, and, and then he goes and, and he persecutes the one who owes him just a little bit. And Jesus finishes that parable with this warning. He says, and in anger, his, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should repay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, we, we beg for forgiveness in all our manifest sins against the Almighty God. We ask Him to forgive us that. 
but then we hold on to the sin against us. Impatience and unforgiveness breed, they foment discord and disunity. Patience and true forgiveness, on the other hand, are essential marks of the peacekeeper. They bring unity. It's only if we have that spirit of patience and forgiveness that we will be able to seek not vengeance, but to do good. This is how we live in harmony with one another, and so far as depends on us, live peaceably with all. Brothers and sisters, our God is a peacemaking God. He has responded to our war against him with an offer of peace. He has responded to our sins with forgiveness. He has offered healing by subjecting himself to wounds. He holds out life and is patient with us to lay hold of it, being patient, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So so where are you today? Are you still at war with God? Can you take the small step of faith? Let us show you with the patience that we've been shown, the beauty of his wondrous mercies, the abundant life we have in Christ that he's offering to you. We'd love to meet with you, any of us, anyone here. We'd love to meet with you and do just that. Maybe you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, but are like Paul himself and, and all of us right, still struggling with specific sins. Can you take the small step of faith to confess that sin to a fellow believer? Ask them to keep you accountable, to admonish you, guide, encourage, and help you as you walk through the continual repentance of spiritual life. Are you weary? Are you faint-hearted? Are you, are, are you weak? Are you sick? Are you struggling? Are you suffering? Can you take the step of faith and cry out the truth of this, to, not just to the Lord, but with the encouragement, with the support of a fellow believer in Christ, one who may have very, very few answers himself or herself, but can join you in, in fervent prayer that you might find the abundant grace and the help that, that God promises and maybe God's placed you in the position to be that peacemaker, right? Who gently admonishes, who encourages, and helps. Can you take that step of faith? Not, not in your own strength, but in faith. Trusting God himself will give you the wisdom, the clarity, the guidance, the patience, working through you to help someone right? bring God glory. And finally, as we as the elders of, uh, of FCBC... We believe that we've been called not to, not to be held up by the church as, as perfect or even special, but instead as fellow witnesses of the sufferings of Christ. We believe that we've been called to shepherd the flock of God that is among us, exercising oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly as God would have us. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering it over those in our charge, but being examples to the, uh, to the faith. Can all of us take this step of faith? Can you respect us who labor among you and are over you in the Lord 
and, and admonish you. Not with blind obedience, but, but joining us and holding us accountable to our mission. Can you follow the example of the Bereans and examine the scripture daily to see if what we're saying is so? Can you pray for us? Can you encourage us when we are faint-hearted or weak and admonish us when we're idle or straying? We believe that all these things are part of being a church whose very nature is one of peace. An example to others who will know that we are disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, by our love for one another. So again, be a peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And as we embrace this, I hope, as we embrace this role of being peacemakers, um, Ken Sandy wrote a great book on, on being a peacemaker. And he has in there this, this prayer of the peacemaker. And I'd like us all to, to pray. I'll read it. But, but just let these words uh, soak into your heart, but then lift them to the Lord as well. Oh, Lord God, today I am called to be a peacemaker, but I am unfit for the task. By nature, I am a peacemaker and a peacebreaker, so I myself need help. Others ask me to understand and guide them, but my ears are dull, my eyes are dim, and I lack the wisdom they need. But you, Lord, have all they need, so I come to you for supply. Make me fit for your purposes so that I might serve them and honor you. Cleanse me from my own sin so that I will not add to their problems. Take the logs from my eyes so I can remove the specks from theirs. Lord, fill me with your spirit so they may benefit from your fruit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Give me wisdom from above so that I might be pure and peace-loving, considerate and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Open your word to my eyes and to my heart so that I will have a steady lamp to light our path. Strip me of my own agenda and desires so I might look only to others' good and be absolutely worthy of their trust. Help me to model everything I teach so others can see the way. Give me humility to admit my weaknesses and confess my wrongs so others might do the same. Draw me again and again into prayer where you can strengthen me and correct me. Make me submissive. Help me to show that I myself am under authority. Help me to treat others as I want to be treated so they may see the essence of your law. Make me creative, versatile, and adaptable so I can adjust to the surprises ahead. Help me to accept others as you have accepted me and thus bring praise to your name. Give me faith and perseverance so that I will not doubt your provision or abandon your principles and even when others fight against them. Grant me the gift of encouragement to give others hope and help them believe that our labor is not in vain. Help me to model your forgiveness so relationships are healed and your gospel is revealed. Grant me the discernment that I may read the deep waters of others' hearts, sort fiction from fact, and know when it's time to act. 
Give me boldness and courage, tempered with kindness, and confront others in love so they may see their errors and find their way back to you. Help me to prepare thoroughly and not presume upon your grace. Make me just and fair so that even if people disagree with my counsel, they will believe that I have treated them well. In short, Father, please give me the spirit of Christ so that I might walk in his steps and guide your people in the path of your peace. We pray this, that we would be encouragers, helpers, admonishers, forgivers. Pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to sing one.